Jesus, help us to put our trust in you all the more um, as you move in this place this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. We've been in a teaching series called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, all about the life of King David and how he's just like us, but only more so. Like when he sins, he sins big. And when he obeys, he obeys big. He's called a man after God's own heart. He's also a murderer, an adulterer, a conspirator, a doubter, someone who runs away from things that are scary, uncomfortable, all kinds of things like that. He's just like us. And today we're zooming out a bit from his story, from the stories we've been looking about, uh, looking at in the life of David, to kind of look at a theme that we find throughout David's life. This is a theme that is a defining theme of David's life. And as we'll see today, this theme is actually a, a defining theme for your life and for my life. And just before we get into it and I tell you what that theme is, I, I got to tell you a story to kind of paint the picture of what this is like. When I was in college, I went with some friends to a theme park in California called Great America. They just had this ride open up called Top Gun. Now it's called Flight Deck. Top Gun is a suspended roller coaster. Um, so where, you know, a traditional roller coaster would have something underneath you, a track, and you'd follow. This is suspended, so there's no track under you. So every loop and everything like that is just the ground and the sky. There's nothing below you. It's kind of wild. And we were super excited about this, so we got there. We made a beeline for the line, and it turns out there was a line for the line. So like 100 yards before the actual line began, there was a line, and we waited, and we waited. We finally got to the front of the line. Uh, then it split into two lines. There was a line that moved quickly. There was a line that moved not so quickly. We thought, why would anyone wait in the line that didn't move quickly? Those people are foolish. But it turns out the line that was moving slowly was the line for just the first four seats of the ride. Because if you had one of the first four seats, not only was there nothing under you or beside you, there was nothing in front of you. It was like somebody was coming up from behind you, giving you a big bear hug and said, hey, don't worry about it. I'm just going to fling you around for a while at 60 miles an hour. We're going to do big loops and things like that. And I'll just hold on to you and it'll all be good, right? The seats were like not these big safety things. It was just like a glorified bicycle seat. It was kind of a wild thing. We waited three and a half hours for those first four seats. Here's what the first four seats looks like. This isn't us. Um, and so you kind of get an idea there. But um, we waited three and a half hours. The ride began. 45 seconds later, the ride was over. <laughs> three and a half hours, 45 seconds. Isn't that kind of like life? Lots of waiting and waiting and waiting, followed by just a few seconds of thrill, followed by more waiting and waiting. This is the theme we're talking about this morning, waiting. It's a theme that defines David's life. Hey, David, you're going to be king, but you're going to have to wait and get tracked by some guy who wants to kill you for a long time. Hey, David, you're going to have this, but you're going to have to wait. It's true for our lives, isn't it? It's a defining theme, waiting. And many of you right this moment are in a season of waiting, only it's not a waiting that is that kind of exciting, I'm waiting to get on this thrill ride. It's a desperate kind of waiting. waiting. You're waiting to hear back about the test results. Is it cancer? Has the cancer returned? Or you're waiting desperately to hear back about a job that you just have to get. Did you get it? You're waiting to hear back about a relationship. Is this one finally going to work out? You're waiting to hear back about a family member. Are they going to finally return my call? Is there going to be reconciliation? Many of us today, for us, waiting feels desperate. Desperate. 
And it's not like waiting in line for a, a theme park ride. It's like waiting in a foxhole with bullets just zipping past our head. It's a desperate kind of waiting. But waiting is so much of what comprises our lives. And inspired by the life of David, there is a psalm, what we call Psalm 40, what we might today call a song that describes the life of waiting and why our waiting is not only necessary, but is actually incredibly valuable and powerful for changing us and for changing those around us. And I just want to zoom in and look at some phrases in these three verses that Dana read to kind of get a sense of how we wait. Let me show you what I mean. I waited patiently for the Lord. This line could be more literally translated, I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited for the Lord. I waited and waited. We know that kind of waiting, don't we? It's a desperate kind of waiting and it can be maddening. It can drive us crazy. God, when is this going to happen? When am I going to get well? When am I going to find a mate? When am I going to find meaningful work that actually pays the bills? When, God, how long, O oh Lord? But this kind of waiting is not a passive kind of waiting. Last week, Scott Dudley talked about passivity and how corrosive and destructive it can be. We saw that in the life of David. We know that in our own lives. When we just choose to disengage and hope it's all going to work out, very often that is detrimental to us and to those around us. But that's not the kind of waiting Psalm 40 talks about. What does it look like? Herman Melville in his classic Moby Dick describes this scene where Captain Ahab and his men are rowing like crazy, chasing down that personification of evil, the great white whale. And the scene is violent and it's turbulent and every man is rowing as hard as they possibly can, rowing for their lives to catch this whale. There is yelling, there is frenzy, there is near panic, but amidst all the violence, amidst all the frenzy, there is one man who is completely still and completely quiet. It's the harpooner. The harpooner sits at the bow of the bow and, boat and just waits, watches intently, still waiting to throw that spear. Now, I'm not saying that uh, violence against whales is a good idea, okay? This is not where I'm headed with this metaphor. <laughs> Pacific Northwest, relax. I'm describing, <laughs> I'm describing a scene in a novel, but Mel Melville has this brilliant line about the scene. He writes this. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet out of idleness, not out of toil. This is not a passive kind of waiting that we're talking about. This is an intense watching, waiting, trying to read the signs, looking for signs of God's activity, praying intently, wholeheartedly, even desperately for answers, taking leaps of faith as necessary, waiting weeks, months, years for answers as necessary. It's a harpooner's kind of waiting. It's a very difficult kind of waiting, especially for you and me in this culture where we can just type something into a search engine and get back a million results in less than a second. It's much harder to be still and to know God, to be still and to know that he is God, but only in that act of stillness will we actually know that he is God. Then there's this next phrase, he turned to me and heard my cry. He turned to me and heard my cry. I've always read this verse and gotten a little bit frustrated with God. Like, what does David have to do to get your attention, Lord? What do I have to do to get your attention? Do I have to like scream and jump up and down and wave my arms? Like, why aren't you paying attention? But that's not how I understand it now. 
fact, that's not what this phrase means. When my toddler son, Ryder, wants something, I know what he wants without even looking at him. Right? He whines in a certain way. You parents know what I'm talking about. There's a certain whine that means a certain thing that you've got to get that person or they're just going to die. Um, but you know what it is without even looking. I don't have to look at him to know what he wants. But I look at him, I turn my face toward him to show him that I see him and that I know what he wants. God turns his face to us to show us that he sees us. It's not like he hasn't been paying attention. He has, absolutely. He just turns toward us so that we could see that he sees us, that he hears us. Did you know that God sees you right now? Whether you're here in person or listening online, God sees you right now. He hears your cry, and he wants you to know that he sees you. Look at this next phrase. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. Our slimy pits, especially in this country, are often self-inflicted pain. Our slimy pits are pits that we've created that are trying to manipulate and control people and situations. They're the result of trying to control our lives and just be safe and comfortable. So we get into these slimy pits. But these slimy pits can also be places of just extreme indecision, that paralyzing indecision. God, should I do this or should I do that? Should I go here or there? God, what do I do? They can be a place where we just can't get past that doubt. We're stuck in doubt. God, I'm not sure that you're good. I'm not sure you even exist. Whatever your slimy pit is, and we've all got them, the point is you can't get out on your own, which is interesting uh, that the psalmist writes, he lifted me out. Not he pulled me out, he lifted me out, which means God does not call to us from outside that pit. Hey, come on up here, let's talk. It's not even like he reaches down and grabs us. When he lifts us out, it means he jumps in the slimy pit with us and lifts us out from below. How does that look? Look at this next phrase. He set my feet on a rock. I once went snorkeling with some friends at Catalina Island in California, and they were all strong swimmers where I was kind of like more of a, like a strong reader. And... <laughs> We got out quite a ways from shore, and I knew I was in trouble, but I was too embarrassed to admit it, so I made some sort of lame excuse, and I started heading back to shore. And halfway back, um, I'm just pulling as hard as I can and not making any progress, and I realize I'm caught in one of those tides, one of those currents where it's pulling you sideways, and you can't get to shore. So somehow, I think because I'm a good reader, I read that you're supposed to, like, swim kind of diagonally, you know, use that current, kind of pull you closer and closer to shore. But I was desperate, man. I was desperate. I thought for sure this was going to be it. And what an embarrassing way to go out with like all this rubber gear on your face. Like I didn't want to go that way. And it was going to happen. And I just prayed and I swam and I prayed and I swam. And finally my foot touched the bottom. And that was like the best feeling ever in my whole life. When we're drowning, we are desperate for that solid ground. We just need our foot to hit bottom. When we're drowning, we need some solid ground, even more than we need questions to our answers. We need solid ground. And God gives us a firm place to stand. What is that firm place? It is himself. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus gives us himself, that solid foundation, to keep us from drowning. He put a new song in my mouth. I love that phrase. People who wait actively, who wait well, they sing a different tune than the rest of us. 
They sing a different tune. In our culture, it's so easy to complain. We live in a very cynical world. In fact, we often bond over cynicism. Have you ever been in that line where the only way you can kind of tolerate it is by you turn to the next person in the line going, this line is horrible. And they're like, yeah, this line is horrible. This whole thing is broken. This world is coming. You know, you just kind of bond over your first world problems there as you're in line at Fred Meyer. And, <laughs> but those who wait on the Lord don't sing the same old tune. They get a new song. And that new song is a song of victory, of overcoming, of facing the challenge and overcoming the challenge. Saying no matter what, we will survive and we will come out the other side of this stronger for the challenge. Let me ask you this. What song do you find yourself singing? Is it a song of worry, of fear, of doubt, of hopelessness? Are those the kind of lyrics going through your mind? Because God wants to put a new song in your mouth, a song of victory, of overcoming, even while we wait, reminding us that there is meaning in all of this stuff. Well, what happens when we wait? Something very unexpected. You would think that waiting wouldn't cause anything to happen. But in fact, those who wait on the Lord transform the world around them. Look at this phrase. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Many will see, they'll notice, they'll take interest in how we're waiting differently. Not panicky, not grabby. We're waiting well. They'll fear the Lord, they'll turn to awe, respect of what God is, what he's doing in our lives. Put their trust in him. Literally put, the tr- put their trust in the details of their lives in God. Our waiting causes people to take notice, to realize something bigger is going on here. There's something more to the story than what we just see Nelson Mandela led a political and cultural revolution that has transformed his home country of South Africa. I have friends who grew up in apartheid, and they say it's, just, it's, it's a different world. Not that there's not any negative effects of it. Of course there are, but it's a different place because of this man. Now, how did he transform the nation of South Africa? By spending 27 years in a jail cell, waiting and waiting and waiting. And as he waited, he grew stronger. He grew more clear about his mission and about who he was, his call. He learned, he trained, he studied. He waited well, and his waiting transformed a nation. That's the kind of thing that happens when we wait the, the way that the psalmist describes here. So let me ask you this How's your waiting going? If you're like me, you don't like waiting at all. Like, I'm bummed out when that funny viral video, like, takes an extra 10 seconds to load, right? We're just used to having it now. Well, I just want to offer a few quick ideas in closing that you might want to play with to just practice some of this waiting well. And I want to suggest there's three things you can do and one thing you must do. Three things you can, one thing you must. Here we go. First, you can tame your calendars, your to-do list. Your many social connections. Refuse to rush. Refuse to be the victim of the need to have the best of everything right now. I say that to myself as much as to anyone. I used to make fun of those parents who would drive their kids to every possible lesson, every possible, you know, all that kind of stuff, get the best of the best. And now I'm like, yeah, you're right. He's got to eat organic French fries. <laughs> like, this got to, like, I got to think that preschool, I got to get him in the right preschool. Otherwise, like, he'll end up at Stanford or something like that. Like, I got to, like, find that track. <laughs> I got to figure that out. I love you, Scott. 
Or you feel like you're just running behind in life. Like I thought by this point in my life, I would have this figured out. Or I'd have this partner in place. I would have a house and I would have this stuff. And you've got like none of it. It's still up in the air. That's a hard place to be. It can make us all very panicky and grabby. But our call is to wait well. Embrace the ordinary is another thing we can do. Most of how we experience God's presence, most of how we come to know that God is good is not in the 45-second thrill ride. It's in the three-and-a-half-hour line of laundry and sharing meals together and just going to work and going home and trying to make a life. But we have to see how those ordinary things are actually extraordinary things. We have to see with those harpooner's eyes. We have to also wait together. If you do all of your waiting alone, as I've sometimes done, you go crazy. I mean, you totally lose it. You lose perspective. Nothing makes sense. You're pretty sure everyone's out to get you. So who waits with you? Who waits with you? How can you invite them more intimately and honestly into your waiting? I need that. You need that. We have to wait together. Finally, most importantly, here's the thing we must do. If nothing else uh, comes to you from this message this morning, just hear these words. We've got to learn to pray this. Pray, Jesus, help me to see what you see. The only way we're going to make it through all this waiting, the only way we're going to be, the only way we're going to wait well is by having Jesus' eyes on this, Jesus' perspective on this. We've got to learn to pray this simple prayer, Jesus, help me to see what you see. In a little bit, we're going to celebrate communion. There will be a space for you. Just pray, Jesus, help me to see what you see. Help me to see this situation as you see it. Help me to see myself as you see me. Like, really. Help us to see what you see. Let me close with this. The last verse of this psalm, of Psalm 40, is so wonderfully encouraging to me. It's encouraging because it's really honest. It's really human. Because after just declaring that his, his freedom, basically, of God has lifted me out of the slimy pit, he's put me on the solid rock, I'm free, this is awesome. After declaring that, he gets to the very end and he says this, but as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. The psalmist concludes with a statement of, of true faith. God, you have rescued me and I still need rescuing. God, you have rescued me, and I still need rescuing. That's why God invites us to get in line. Get in line. He promises the wait is going to be worth it, not just for what is to come, not just for the 45-second thrill ride, but actually in the waiting, in the line. The line is transformative. The line can be joy-filled. The line can change everything. So this morning, just before we move to communion, I want to pray together as a family. That God would help us to see what he sees and that he would speak to us in our waiting. So let's pray together. And as we do, I want you to just imagine that Jesus is turning his face to you right now. And he was saying to you, I see you. I see you. And I hear you. I know that this waiting is so painful. That's why I wait with you. I groan with you. I cry with you. Jesus, help us to see what you see in this situation. Help us to see what you might have us to learn, how you might have us grow. Teach us how to wait actively with that full confidence that you are good despite how things may look. God, and send us friends to wait with. Waiting can be so lonely, so isolating. We need that friendship, that community. Send that our way, God. 
Teach us to wait well. We want the world to be changed around us, even as we're changed in the waiting. We love you, Jesus. Amen.